Good afternoon, everyone. It's good to see you all. Excited to be in the Word together with you. If you have a Bible, you can take it and turn to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 6, as we continue to work through this exciting and helpful book in the New Testament. Acts 6, and we, unlike last week where we covered a large number of verses, we'll just cover the first seven verses here in the book of Acts. Distraction can be deadly. In our age of constant connection and seemingly endless entertainment, distracted driving has become a major problem all around the world. Rather than focusing on the road and the cars that are around us, we become distracted, especially by our phone, but maybe by the food that we just got because we went through the drive through or maybe by the song that's on the radio. Uh, and in the midst of our distraction, disasters can happen. A distraction of, of any kind happens when what is most important in the moment is neglected, and not necessarily for bad things, um, but for less important matters. Uh, it's neglected, uh, neglecting to focus on what should concern us to focus on lesser concerns. Here in the book of Acts, since chapter 3, we've noticed a number of threats to the ministry of the early church, including persecution and imprisonment from without, as well as hypocrisy from within. And today, as we look at Acts 6, 1 through 7, we find that distraction was also a threat to the growth and the vitality of the early church and distraction from within. Distraction is a threat for us as a church today, too. Uh, as a church, we fight distraction from what is most important, from what is key to our ministry as a church and as the people of God. Because if we're distracted, it can be deadly. It can lead us away from our God-given mission that's so supposed to be centered on the word and prayer and on this mission of of that we're called to fulfill uh, through the body of Christ as we minister to all people in a, in a way that's empowered by the Spirit. And so the call of, of Acts 6, 1 through 7 is for, in general, for us to not be distracted. Uh, we might say it like this, beware of being distracted from the central importance of the Word of God and prayer. That's to us as a church, but also to us as individuals. Beware of being distracted. Distracted from what? Distracted from the central importance of the Word of God and prayer. Beware of being distracted from the central importance of the Word of God and prayer. That's what we'll think about this afternoon. And it's good to think about it, because if we lose sight of these central tenets of the Word and of prayer, then disaster can result by us being distracted. And so... My prayer is that we would be like the church here in Acts 6, because when the distraction, the potential for distraction came, they resisted it so that the mission of the church could move forward. As with all these other um, means of, of, of threat from within and from without, the early church, we see them overcoming it. And here again, distraction is a potential threat to the church, but they overcome it. And so let's read together Acts 6. And I'll read verses 1 through 7. Now in these days, 
when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests came became obedient to the faith. Here in chapter 6, the focus of our attention has yet to leave the city of Jerusalem. So this is where the life of the early church started and where it was created. It's where the growth and the influence of the church is happening. Though very soon, we're going to find the believers and the gospel spreading out to other areas as the good news of Jesus is taken to the ends of the earth outside of even Jerusalem. But for now, we're still in the city of Jerusalem. And as we've looked at these various threats that came to the early church in Jerusalem, we've seen that despite opposition and despite the persecution and the efforts of Satan to squash the growing movement of Jesus' followers, the church has continued to flourish. Ironically, persecution, as is often the case, seemed to have the opposite of its intended effect as more and more souls were added to the Lord and to his church. As we saw last week, whether those who were upset with the, Christ, with, with the Christians, whether they chose to actively oppose them or whether they chose to passively ignore them, it didn't matter. They continued to grow in size and in influence. We're told here in verse 1 that it's in the midst of this growth, as the disciples were increasing in number, that a threat arose from within. It was a danger that sort of came up like a, like a low rumble. It's described here as a complaint in the ESV, but other versions talk about people grumbling. And when I hear that word grumbling in scripture, I'm reminded of the Israelites in the, in the desert who, after witnessing the, the mighty works of God, the mighty deeds of God as he split the Red Sea, quickly fell into grumbling and complaining. And here, as there, a complaint threatens the unity and the mission of the people of God. However, I think what's different here is that the complaint appears to be a legitimate complaint. In other words, the Israelites complained because they had manna, but they didn't have any meat. But here, the, the Hellenists, we're going to find, complained because they're getting nothing, and the Hebrews are getting everything. So while grumbling and complaining may have actually been a, a poor way to deal with the problem, the problem was legitimate. The problem was real. So what exactly is, is going on? What's, what's the problem? Let, let's try to understand what's going on in the church. So here's what we see. Back in, in chapter four, we're told that the, the church had all things in common. You remember that they were, they were giving everything that they had and they were laying it at the disciples, at the apostles feet 
so that they could care for the needy among them. Um, though we're not exactly told how that happened, how were the needy cared for. So it's interesting here in verse 1 that it says there was a a daily distribution of some kind, which must mean that that food and maybe other items were being handed out in some organized way on a daily basis um, amongst the followers of Jesus. And so naturally widows would have been a part of this group that was provided for through the funds that were given to the church because they were needy in a unique way, especially in that uh, in the first century, but also it would have gone to others who were in need. And we know that this, this relief of the poor, this isn't original to the Christians. The law speaks about caring for widows, and most of these early Christians were Jewish people, so they were seeking to do what the law had told them to do, and they were caring for widows and for the poor. But the church also kind of takes this to a next, the next level, doesn't it? To the point that in chapter 4 it says there were, there were no poor among them. So this is radical giving and radical providing for the people. Just pause and think about how big of a job that would have been. There's thousands of new believers and people are being added to the church every single day. If you've ever been a part of distributing food or clothing or other necessities to people that are are in need, then you know how it quickly becomes a pretty large operation to handle. You might even, Grace Fellowship, remember when we did our Thanksgiving meals over on Bardstown Road. And we fed maybe a hundred people for one night. And here it's, it's thousands of people. And the distribution is not just, just Thanksgiving every year. It's, it's every single day. And if everything is being laid at the apostles' feet, then surely they feel the need to have some sort of hand in this process. And so this is an everyday concern that they are trying to oversee this whole process of thousands of people and people in need and widows and others making sure that they get all of their necessities. So it's in the midst of these daily distributions that we find a complaint arising because some people were being neglected. Specifically, it's the Hellenistic widows. The, the Hellenists, as best we can tell, were, were Greek-speaking Jews in contrast to the, the Hebrews who probably spoke Aramaic. But beyond just language, the Hellenists were, were more Greek in their dress and in their, their culture probably and the Hebrews probably held more firmly to, to Jewish cultural norms. And so both of these groups have, have gathered in the early church where presumably the Hebraic Jews are the larger and the more influential group. And in this gathering, the Hellenists are being neglected. So you get a picture of what that would feel like. There's this group within the church that was not getting what they should have. I'll give you an illustration. I gave some people some chocolate. Who got a piece of chocolate? Who didn't get a piece of chocolate? How do you feel about that? <laughs> now, that's just chocolate. But there's, there were some people that were getting things and other people that weren't, and it caused a conflict. And they started to ask, well, why is this happening? Well, why are some people getting things and other people are not? Why did Andy give chocolate to Elaine and why didn't I give it to Evelyn? Do I like Elaine more than I like Evelyn? You start having these discussions and it started to become a real issue. So that's the problem. And as we think about the the nature of that problem, there's two threats that emerge. The, the threat of division and the threat of distraction. I think the threat of division is kind of a secondary one and the threat of distraction is more the primary one 
But I think it's it's good to think about this threat of division. And so I want to talk about that first. So let's talk about the threat of division. Having identified the problem, we see that the problem caused this threat of division. When you start thinking about Hellenistic Jews and and Hebraic Jews, you start to remember the multicultural nature of this early church. It was marked from the beginning when the, the Spirit came and enabled the, the disciples to speak in all these different languages, this sort of reversal of the Tower of Babel, and people are being brought in from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And it's a beautiful gathering of all different languages and, and cultures. And yet, this kind of multicultural, multilingual group often looks a lot better on paper than it does in person. If you come to the coffee ESL classes on Tuesdays or Fridays, then you know the beauty of these gatherings, but you also know the difficulties that are inherent in that. The struggle to communicate across language lines, uh, the potential to accidentally offend someone by something you say or do, the need to be aware of different cultural norms for various people groups and how you're supposed to talk to others. And this was the case in the, the early church. So here in this circumstance, given the, the stated cultural and ethnic component of the problem, we would naturally ask if the neglect of the Hellenistic Jews was accidental or was it done on purpose? So in other words, was this just maybe it was an issue of language? So meaning that the Greek-speaking widows were neglected because the the Aramaic-speaking majority didn't understand them. That was... That was the problem. Or maybe there's some sort of cultural confusion. Maybe the widows were trying to say that they needed food and the others didn't understand that and they thought they were saying they didn't need food. Or maybe there's something deeper going on here. Maybe this is a form of prejudice. Maybe this is a form of discrimination happening in the early church. We know as we read through the book of Acts and through the New Testament that there's a large dividing wall between the Jew and the Jews and the Gentiles, and that's about to be on full display as the gospel expands. But here it's it's maybe not a full-blown wall, but there's a fence of some kind between these two groups, and that fence needs to be addressed. I think it's interesting to note that the solution to the problem is not to separate. The solution to the problem isn't to say, well, we just need a Hellenistic church and we need a Hebraic church. That's what we got to do. So what that tells me is there's difficulty in cultures colliding as they come to faith in Jesus, but it's a difficulty that's worth working through because the gathering of all peoples and all languages is at the core of the good news of Jesus because Jesus has come to redeem the world and people from every part of the world. And if there's any place where all nations and all cultures and all languages should be able to come together, it's the church. I know that the the heart of Grace Fellowship Church, from the very beginning, there's always been this desire to be a multicultural church as we reflect the sort of multicultural, multilingual city that we live in. That's at the roots of, of who we are. And as I read this, it just makes me say that if we're going to be a church like that, it means we're going to have to be really good at communicating clearly with one another and recognizing the challenges that come with such a gathering. It means if you bring lots of different cultures together, it means that there's a greater risk of, there's a greater risk for grumbling and complaining and misunderstanding amongst us. It means that we need to listen to one another very carefully 
And we need to seek to understand the various perspectives that, that we have maybe in this room and maybe Lord willing as other cultures and other nations and other languages would come in that we would be aware that we need to communicate clearly and be patient. We need to be willing to bend on non-essentials rather than break up over preferences or unintentional offenses or difficult conversations that we have. That could be said of any culture clash that, that happens. It doesn't have to be across country lines or continent lines. It can be just the cultural preferences that we all have because of where we were born and where we were raised. There's, there's always room for us to die to ourselves and to our preferences in the church for the greater unity of the body of Christ and for the glory of God being displayed in the world. So to that end, I guess I would ask you, what are your blind spots and your preferences that affect others within the church? And how can we all seek to serve one another by seeking to understand each other and to listen to each other's concerns? Not with defensiveness or dismissiveness, not not dismissing problems and saying that's not a real issue, or or not being defensive and saying, well, you just need to get over that but rather with a desire to serve one another in love. And are we tempted to just draw lines and divide over cultural and ethnic the differences, or are we willing to allow the gospel to tear down all the things that would divide us, allowing our common faith and what unites us and in Jesus to display God's glory in this world as we gather together? So there's a threat of division. And beyond this threat of division, then, Again, I think that's secondary, but the primary threat here is the threat of distraction. The threat of distraction. In verse 2, once the, the issue is understood, and once it's seen to be a legitimate concern, the apostles call together, it says, the full number of the disciples. That's a lot of people. <laughs> so you might say this is the first members meeting, and it's a really, really big one. Uh, the apostles speak to the issue at hand, and we find a, a few truths that, he, that emerge. So let me just give you, I, I see three things that kind of arise from this conversation between the apostles and, and, the, um, and the church as they deal with the threat of distraction. And the first thing that, that kind of rises to the top is the priority of preaching and prayer in the church. The priority of preaching and prayer in the church. You know, I probably shouldn't say preaching. That's too narrow. Can we just say the priority of the word and prayer in church? The priority of the word and prayer in church. So we see that the, the 12, they're called the 12 here, stand up. And they say, how do they begin? They say, it is not right. It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve Tables. They stand up and they say it wouldn't be right for them to neglect preaching the word so that they can serve tables. And then later on, they add that their solution to the problem would allow them, as the apostles, to remain devoted to prayer and to ministering to the, the word without the distraction of the food, the food distribution. They're saying, we can't deal with this anymore because we need to focus on the word and prayer. Notice a few things about that, that the apostles are not saying that they are unwilling to serve tables. Remember who they're following. They served a master who washed their feet the night before he died and then told them to do the same for one another. They serve a master, as Jordan read for us earlier, who said, I didn't come to 
to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom. And so I don't think um, that they're that that this solution that they're giving is intended to sort of set them apart from everyone else in a way that would keep them from being involved in the practical needs of the church. In other words, I don't think the apostles are saying that they're unwilling to to set up the chairs, that they're unwilling to to serve food, that that that's something that's below them. That, that's not what's going on here. Nor do I think that we should think that the apostles are wanting to close themselves up in their studies all week long so that they can preach a sermon on Sunday and then go back to their books all week long. Their teaching ministry, when you think about what's going on in the early church, was full-time because we find at the end of chapter 5, it says that every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. So they taught in the temple and they taught from house to house. This is something that's constantly going on. It's not just a, a preaching ministry, though that's part of it, and it's an important part of it, but it's also a discipleship ministry. It's a Bible reading ministry. It's gathering together um, and, and talking through the scriptures and teaching the scriptures to others. And I imagine that their prayer ministry was the same. If you're like me, when I hear that they were devoted to prayer, the first thing I think of is private prayer, which is surely part of what they did. But I think they prayed in the same way that they taught from house to house in the temple and all over, that they were praying with others. It wasn't just cloistered in their closet praying and then going out and studying and then showing up at the church maybe once a week. No, they were with people and they were teaching and they were praying. So this solution, in the solution, don't hear the apostles trying to be elitists or trying to separate themselves from the people. Rather, I think the apostles are admitting that they're not supermen, that they can't do everything for everyone, that they are not the Messiah. They just know who the Messiah is, and they need to tell everyone who he is. And and the Messiah called them, and he equipped them specifically to preach and to teach. And they realize, they say, if we're going to organize this distribution of food, it's it's getting out of hand. And we're neglecting teaching the word and praying to do this. And they say about that, they say, this is not right. That's why I think we could call this the threat of distraction, meaning that the apostles would be distracted from the priorities of preaching and praying. And I have no doubt that Satan is involved in this because if Satan can distract the church from its core ministry of understanding the gospel and of prayer so that they would focus on serving tables, which is a good thing. If they can do that, though, if Satan can do that, then the church will fall apart. It'll fall apart just like Gamaliel predicted, because the basis of their unity is faith in Jesus, not kindness to the poor. The The basis of their unity is their faith in Christ, not helping widows. Therefore, if the word and, the, and prayer becomes secondary, then the church becomes insignificant and it becomes hollow. It has to be central. I say all that, and yet we also know that kindness to the poor is an overflow of true faith. It's an application of the gospel that is being preached. And so in addition to the priority of of the word and prayer, the second thing I think we see when we think about this, this thread of division is the importance of what we'll call social work in the church. That's a broad term, so maybe it means something different to other people. We'll just say the the importance of social work in the church. 
as we think about the, the solution that the apostles are going to propose, it's wise to note that the solution isn't to scrap the good work of helping widows and the poor. That's not the solution. The daily distribution, they say, needs to keep happening. But they just need to find a way to make preaching and prayer a priority while also meeting the physical needs of the people who are around them. Now, this is the struggle that the church throughout all generations has faced. It's this this struggle to fall off on one side of the road or the other. It's either to be focused on preaching and prayer so much that we neglect the needs of those around us, or to be so focused on the needs among and around us that we allow the ministry of the word and prayer to slip into second place. We get distracted. And the apostles widely see that they the care of the needy is it's a car. It's a rail car on the train. Okay? In the train of the church, you might say, that, that caring for the needy is one of the cars that's on the train. But it's not the engine. The engine that drives the church is the gospel proclaimed through teaching and preaching and fueled by prayer and reliance on the Spirit. And as we fuel the gospel engine, we will care for the poor and we will care for other countless other social concerns. Those will be pulled along. And if we make those concerns, but if we, if we make our, these concerns, the engine, then it's like, it's like putting a, a box car at the front of your train and expecting it to keep going. It's not going to go unless it's on, you might have a little bit of momentum to keep rolling, but it's going to go off on some other trail. So the, the gospel, the preaching and the, the teaching of the word and prayer are what drive these things forward. Is, should the, the, should the church care for the poor? Yes, we should be the best at it. We should do it better than anyone else because we have the, the, the greatest drive and the greatest passion and the greatest reason to do it. But that's not what drives us. So we see these competing concerns, the, the threat of distracting the church from what is primary, but also the importance of the thing that is potentially distracting them. And so the solution comes, and when the solution comes, we see this thing, and I just call it the beauty of the body of Christ. So as we think about this this threat of distraction, we, we're seeing the the priority of the word and prayer, the importance of social work in the church, but also as the solution comes, we see the beauty of the body of Christ. The body of Christ is an illustration that Paul works out in his letters, and it has to do with the thought that the church is a body, where Jesus is the head. And every person in the body has a function and has a role as a part of the body. And he says that we should not desire to be some other part of the body than what we are. But he also talks about how the beauty that is seen when the body of Christ works together, and it's all all its diversity, there's there's unity. And so when when we look at the way the church deals with this, I think we see the beauty of the body of Christ expressed in this we see it first in their unified decision-making. The beauty of the body of Christ is expressed in the fact they make a decision and they're unified in this decision. Unified decision-making. The church is gathered together, the apostles present the issue, and then they say, here's the solution we have. The solution is to pick out seven men to take the lead in making sure that the food is distributed to everyone, that no one is excluded, that everyone who is in need gets the food. And they say that this is the solution because the apostles need to focus on the word and prayer. How does the crowd, how does, how does not the crowd, how does the church, how do the, 
the followers of Jesus, how do they respond? It says in verse 5, and what they said, what the apostles said, pleased the whole gathering. The solution makes everyone happy. Everyone loves this idea. And they see the wisdom of it. They don't accuse the apostles of being lazy for not wanting to preach or, or for wanting to preach and not distribute food. And they don't say that the Hellenists are a bunch of whiners and they need to get over it. Instead, God's grace through his spirit ministers to the whole congregation so that everyone is pleased with this solution. The first members meeting was a good members meeting. <laughs> and so they put their heads together as a church and they choose seven well-respected, faithful, Holy Spirit-filled men to do what the apostles said to do. Isn't that beautiful, this unity that happens? It's a beautiful display of a couple of things. It's a beautiful display of the leadership of the apostles, but also of the authority that's within the church. So the apostles lead, and they do it with strength. The congregation is looking for them, to them for answers. And so they come with a solution to the problem. They don't come and say, you guys need to deal with this. They come with a solution to the problem. But they also recognize that the church is not a business or a company where they are the CEOs. But rather they realize that the church is the company of God's people filled with his spirit and they can make a unified decision. There's great trust that happens here with the apostles, isn't there? Right in the beginning, they say, here's the solution. You guys pick the men. You're in charge of finding the guys that are going to work with us. They're not involved in that process. That's deep trust. But it shows this unity. When the church is functioning as a strong body, there's clear leadership that's trusted. And there's also unity amongst all the spirit-filled children of God who make up the church. It's a beautiful thing when it happens. I just thought it's a beautiful thing, especially in comparison when we think about governments around the world that can't make decisions without fighting and bickering and backbiting, passing money back and forth and all these things. The church, by God's spirit, can come together from all these different realms, from different cultural backgrounds, from different languages, different ages, different genders, everything, and we can come together and we can make unified decisions. I praise God that we have seen that here. We've seen division. <laughs> Let's all admit that. We've seen division, but by God's grace, we can say that GFC has been marked by humble leadership and unified decisions within the membership. And that's a beautiful, God-honoring, spirit-empowered testimony to the world. And I pray that it would continue. So we're thinking about the beauty of the body of Christ. We see it in this unified decision-making, but we also see it in diversity in gifts and calling. So there's unified decision-making, but there's also diversity in the gifts and the calling that are a part of the church. The illustration of the body, remember, shows that there are different parts of the body called to do different things. And every part is necessary, whether they receive more or less honor. All Every part is needed. And so as the apostles recognize their specific calling to the ministry of the word and prayer, the church rec recognizes Stephen, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas. And all these guys, they say, these guys are gifted and they can serve the church by serving the needy. That's what these guys, are, these guys are going to be great at that. They're not called deacons here, but many people, because of the emphasis on serving and the strong character that's described, think that these are maybe, if not the first deacons, at least sort of the um, 
the template for what the deacons would become in the church. Whether or not they carried the, the title, they certainly carry the characteristics. You see that they were well respected. These guys were above reproach. They, this would be, you think about the situation they're stepping into. This is going to be especially important because of that, that controversy that's happening. These guys need to be above reproach so they can't be accused of playing favorites. They can't be accused of being, of being motivated by selfish motives. The congregation needs to trust them, and the congregation does. They trust these guys. They say they're going to deal with this, and we, we trust them to handle it. So they're well-respected. They're full of the Spirit. We know all true believers have the Holy Spirit, but these guys are particularly led by, yielded to, filled with the Spirit. They're under His influence. They're filled with His power. They're led by His heart, and that's why they're set apart. And they're full of wisdom. They all have a good head on their shoulders. They have insight into people and how to lead people, how to encourage them. They could take on this task. Not everyone can handle this, right? Not everyone could take on feeding thousands of people on a daily basis. But they could. And you know what? They probably did a better job than the apostles had done up to that point. They probably really focused on it and knew what they were doing. I had a friend who just said to me, you know, pastors shouldn't be afraid of of men and women in the church who know how to do things well. <laughs> and I think the apostles weren't afraid of that. They weren't afraid to say, these guys can organize this way better than we can. And so let's let them do it. And they did. So these guys are well-respected. They're full of the Spirit. They're full of wisdom. A couple other notes. Stephen in particular is said to be full of faith, which we're going to see exemplified in the coming weeks. Another note is that some people have said, based on their names, that all of these guys may have been Hellenists. I find it hard to say that, uh, nor does that seem like it would have been a wise move. I think that would have been kind of overcompensated in the other direction, you know. I think the important thing is that they're all strong believers filled with the Spirit. That's what's important. As I think about that description of these guys, there's a sense in which I look at them and I say, they're way overqualified. <laughs> they're just leading a food distribution. Aren't these guys overqualified for what they're doing? Well, I, you think, you know, Stephen's going to preach one of the great sermons in the book of Acts. Philip is the guy who is going to bring the gospel to the Ethiopian eunuch. Um, and so we see that, and we also see the apostles lay their hands on these guys and pray for them. They set them apart for this ministry. I think all that to say that there's probably more that they're doing than just organizing a food pantry. But there's, it's also not less. They're doing more than that but they're not doing less than that. And, and because of that, I think we're reminded that each of us as children of God are filled with his spirit and we're able to minister to others in unique ways that God has gifted us, that we are all a part of this body for a purpose and for a reason, and that the body is not the same without each member that's, that's in it. And while the word and prayer must remain central in the church, that doesn't mean that only the people who preach and pray for a living are full-time ministers or that eldership is the goal of everyone in the church. Rather, we've all been gifted by God and we are all able to minister in the unique ways that God has equipped us. Can I read some John Stott just because I was struck by what the way he said this? So here's a maybe a little bit too long of a quote, but we'll give it a try. Uh, he says, we do a great disservice to the church whenever we refer to the pastorate as the ministry. For example, when we speak of ordination in terms of entering the ministry, 
This use of the definite article implies that the ordained pastorate is the only ministry there is. But he says, but diakonia, that's the word for deacon, is a generic word for service. It lacks specificity until a descriptive adjective is added, whether pastoral, social, political, medical, or other. All Christians, without exception, being followers of him who came not to be served but to serve, are themselves called to ministry, indeed to give their lives in ministry. But the expression full-time Christian ministry is not to be restricted to the church work and missionary service. It can also be exercised in government, the media, the professions, business, industry, and the home. We need to recover this vision of the wide diversity of ministries to which God calls his people. We are all full-time ministers because we're all Christians filled with his spirit, placed in different realms of society to minister to others. So there's this threat, a threat of division and a threat of distraction, but the apostles and the church come through it well. They they keep the word and they keep prayer central. They continue to do the good ministry of ministering to the poor, and they show the unity and the diversity of the body of Christ in this moment. And Satan is crushed underneath their feet. And the result is that the word continues to increase. That's what happens in verse 7. The word continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And I love this too. It says that even a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. When we keep the word and prayer in their proper central place, we can expect continued and even surprising growth. We can expect people that we never would expect to come to faith to come to faith. There's a lot more we could say about these seven verses, but let me offer four applications as we close, somewhat briefly. (laughs) Um, The first application is seek to discern the spirits and trust in Jesus' power. Seek to discern the spirits and trust in Jesus' power. I want to again read Stott. He was really helpful this week. about this, I'm going to read it and not comment on it. That's the application, seek to discern the spirits and to trust in Jesus' power. And Stott says, We have now seen the three tactics which the devil employed in his overall strategy to destroy the church. First, he tried through the Jewish authorities to suppress it by force. Secondly, through the married couple Ananias and Sapphira to corrupt it by hypocrisy. And thirdly, through some squabbling widows to distract its leadership from prayer and preaching and so expose it to error and evil. If he had succeeded in any of these attempts, the new community of Jesus would have been annihilated in its infancy. But the apostles were sufficiently alert to detect the devil's schemes. We need their spiritual discernment today to recognize the activity of both the Holy Spirit and the evil spirit. We also need their faith in the strong name of Jesus, by whose authority alone the powers of darkness can be overthrown. As a church, let's seek to discern the spirits and trust God's power. Second application, affirm the centrality of preaching and praying. Affirm that in our hearts and in our church, and I affirm it here uh, from the pulpit, to affirm the centrality of the word of preaching and of praying. That's not flashy. That's not really exciting. But we're reminded that the word and prayer are what the church is built on. This is our message Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. 
We've all sinned and we've all fallen short of his glory. The payment for our sin is death, but the gift of God through Jesus is eternal life. And all who would repent of their sins and trust in Jesus who lived and died and rose again can be saved. And Jesus will one day return to judge all people and to establish his kingdom for all eternity. This is the message that is at the heart of who we are. And we have to keep that central and continue to proclaim it. That's the engine that drives us. As I think about application, I think about uh, the elders in our church. And as elders, we believe this and we want to practice it more and more. There's, there's, there's not a one-to-one comparison between the apostles and the elders in this passage. So I want to be careful not to say that elders are not apostles. Um, but the elders of this church are responsible for keeping the word and prayer central. And so I would ask you to pray for us. Pray that we would be wise in our use of time, that we would know what to say yes to and what to say no to, that we'd know how to delegate. We've got wonderful deacons in this church, but sometimes we don't ask them to do stuff. And we need to do that. We need to let them serve. And not just deacons, but each of you. There are ways that you can serve, and we need to know how to to give things up and let that happen. So pray for us. Pray that we would be wise in that way. Pray that we would think through discipleship and how we can keep the word and prayer central in the life of our church. We're processing through that right now. We're going to read and really think through how can we make sure that the word is being proclaimed, yes, from the pulpit, but that it's from house to house that we're equipped to know how to disciple one another. I'd say, too, by application, call on the elders. Ask us questions. We want to talk about the scriptures. We want to help you grow and learn. Uh, We want to pray with and for you. I find it so sad, I guess, sometimes when people say, I know you're really busy, but I wanted to ask you a question about the Bible. (laughs) I know you're really busy, but I wanted to ask you if you'd pray for me. There's nothing in the world that, that Joel or Joshua or myself or Trevor would rather do than to pray with you and to answer your questions about the scriptures. That's, that's part of why God has placed us in this church. And so please call on us. I think that if we're making the, the prior preaching and praying a priority, then you need to make Sundays a priority. The preaching of the word is vitally important. We saw that in 2 Timothy 4. And the time that we pray together after church is precious. So don't neglect those moments. I'd also say not just Sundays, but seek out a a small group where you can apply the word of God to your life. And you can pray with others throughout the week, not just on Sundays. And if you need help connecting, I'd love to help you connect with with people that are meeting throughout the week so that you can do that. So we want to affirm the priority of preaching of the word and, and prayer. Third, briefly, celebrate the ministry of all believers. Celebrate the ministry of all believers. Celebrate your own ministry, that we are all called to be ministers of the gospel. Recognize that you are called to minister full-time, just in a different way, whether inside or outside of the church, and seek to do that for God's glory. Recognize that what you are doing as you proclaim the gospel in word and in deed is ministry. As you go to your your different places of employment, as you serve people in different ways, you are ministering as a representative of Christ. So celebrate that. And fourth, I would just say, expect that we need to expect continued and supernatural growth when the church functions as it should. We should expect continued and supernatural growth when the church functions as it should.
if we keep God's word central and we equip all people to minister to one another, then we should pray for and expect God to add to his church. It's not all about numbers. But there are numbers in the book of Acts. And they do talk about people being added to the church. And there is health when we proclaim the gospel that people would come to faith. Sometimes expectations are half the battle, aren't they? If you come to church expecting to hear from God's word, you've got a greater likelihood to hear from it. If you come expecting that you're not going to hear anything, you're probably not going to hear anything. What if we started to expect that God would bring supernatural and continued growth to our church? I'm encouraged by our church. Are we perfect? Not at all. We've got a lot of ways to grow. But is the word central? Is prayer central to who we are? Is there strong community amongst us? Are we seeking to take the gospel to our community and to the world? Yes, we are. And I think because of that, whether we meet at 3 o'clock in someone else's building or whether we meet at 10 a.m. in our own building, that we can expect that God can use Grace Fellowship Church to draw people into his kingdom. Do you expect that? Let's pray to that end and let's ask God to save people through the ministry of our church and to help each of us to grow to know Christ more.